I've been asked if we're having our assembly tonight at 6 p.m., and uh, the answer is yes. And uh, if we're not going to cancel services for inclement weather, we're not going to do it for a Katy Perry concert, all right? I hear there's a warm-up act. I think some guys are playing football. Uh, What's the rule if if you say Super Bowl, you have to pay royalties or something? Is that how it works? You can't say Super Bowl. So every time you say Super Bowl, you've got to pay a royalty. Super Bowl. How about that? Super Bowl. Come on after me, guys. Super Bowl. How do you like that? Super Bowl. Can't get blood out of a turnip. Super Bowl. All right. The um, Super Bowl. That's right. Good news. I got a text from uh, Jerry Looney just as the worship began. And... Um, he said to thank all of you for your prayers. I mean, we had good news from Wayne Gist last week. Praise God for that. And, 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 and Donna's doing much better than expected, and she's gone through some very extensive surgery. So Jerry has asked me to convey to you, thank you for the prayers and continue to pray. So let's pray together now. Father, do be with our, our friends and our family like Jerry and Donna. And we give you thanks for the ways that you're working powerfully in the lives of people. Help us to share that good news with one another and others so that we can testify to the whole world that you're a good God and a great creator, that you care about us. And Father, it's not our job to explain all the mysteries of your existence, to explain all the wonders of why you do what you do and how you do it and when and where and why, but teach us to just glorify you. Father, teach us how to lament as well. Some of us uh, come together on a worship like this and our hearts are filled with grief and worry. Lord, we, we, don't, we don't make light of that. We bring that to you and we ask that uh, you would act in a mighty way. Father, bless us now as we go over your word. I pray that you would be with me as the preacher and be with this group as the hearers. And I pray that in the In the preaching and the hearing of your word, we are shaped into the sort of people that you want us to be. Father, help us to embrace that story that gives us true identity and true meaning and teaches us who we are in this world so that we might know who we are forever and ever. We ask this in the name of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Just recently, you saw the Constitution in action. Every year, the President is to give to Congress his State of the Union report. Uh, In times past, it's been a written report. But most often in history, especially in the 20th century, it's uh, it's been an address. And in the age of media, radio and television, it's certainly uh, an opportunity for the President to put forth his agenda and to speak to the nation Uh, There's a public, social, and political purpose that goes along with it as well. And it sort of looks like a a preacher addressing a congregation. And then you widen that congregation when you think of the American public. It's because of that, I think, that church growth experts have suggested that preachers give a state-of-the-church address to motivate greater activity within the congregation. So... I've thought about it, and the more I've thought about it, I've thought, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. (laughs) Now, it only makes, I'll tell you why, it only makes sense 
uh, if the church is a, a corporation, if the church is some sort of institution like a nation or a republic, and that is not what the church is. Also, if there is a state of the church address, uh, even if we can get past the fact that, it, that the church is not a political state, the church is not a business, even if we could give such an address, you're not going to get it from me. I'm not qualified. I'm not the head of state. I'm not a CEO. The elders have told you now for the last month that they are not the board of directors. In fact, the head of the church is Jesus Christ, the King. He's given the address. He's said all that there is to say about the church. You know, if the president comes out and says the state of the union is, and then he fills in the blank, there's nothing that any of us can say that will erase or or be better than what Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has said about the church. He has said that the church, the state of the church is being saved, made holy, redeemed, filled with the Spirit. It is the body of Christ. Jesus Christ and His Spirit working through the inspired writers have said this and much more about the church. So, as far as a state of the church address goes, it's been said. We just need to Share it with one another. So there you go. There's your state of the church address. Know it. However, I'm a part of another union, and you are too. For better or worse, I'm a resident, and I am a stakeholder in another land. For better or worse, I am, of course, talking about the world. And the world... In the world, I'm just as qualified as anyone to report to you on the state of the world. And I know that may seem arrogant, like I'm saying I'm the king of the world or something like that. I'm not. The world, in fact, has one ruler, God, and has one Lord, Jesus Christ. But the world sometimes exists in a state of rebellion. And on behalf of all of those who live as a rebellious sinner in the world, and I'm not always conformed to the image of my Creator, I'm just as qualified as anybody to speak to the state of the world. No one can truly give you an honest report on the state of the world and not at the same time have it turn into a humbling confession of how much we need a savior and a rescuer so as i report to you on the state of the world i as part of the world am confessing and reporting on the need of the world to have a savior and a rescuer and just as you are also residents in the world because where else are you living i don't see any martians here today i don't see anybody from uh, some other dimension so we are all residents of the world now we are striving to be the church in the world and we have a better calling we'll get to that but in the meantime we live in a world and whether we call it our home or not it shapes us and we shape it and there's four things i would tell you then about the state of the world and and please understand that in doing so i want you to hear this report i am not passing judgment on the world No more than I would pass judgment on myself or judgment on all of you. Jesus himself, that's that's his prerogative to pass judgment. And yet even he says that when he came into the world, he did not come to condemn. It's not within my authority to pass judgment on the world. Rather, I'm speaking as a representative of the world. 
I speak as one who dwells in the world. I'm bearing witness and I'm confessing. So the state of the world, the first thing is that the state of the world, especially in the Western world that you and I know, in Western culture, it is becoming increasingly secular. Here's what this means. It means that the, the condition of unbelief, where it's taken for granted that there is no God, the condition of unbelief where we don't assume the existence of God, but we may have to actually work to prove an existence of God, or we may have to argue for an existence of God. That condition of unbelief is becoming more and more the norm than the natural condition of belief. And obstacles to unbelief have been crumbling for the last 500 years. And this is why. Because during the last 500 years, as you see the rise and uh, the dominance of, of Christendom, and Christendom is the idea that the church and Christianity also occupies a political space, okay? During the, the first um, 1,000 years of that rise, say somewhere around the year 500 up until the year 1500, let's say, the world was divided into two realms. The ancient view was that there was a sacred, a spiritual and heavenly realm, and there's a secular, which is the ordinary, daily, temporal, earthly way of doing things. Now, it's not that those are dislocated from each other in space, In fact, they reside in the same space. And the sacred realm is represented on earth so that there are spiritual things and there are heavenly things and there are things visible in the world and there are things invisible in the world that are sacred and heavenly and holy. Things like worship. That becomes a sacred time and a sacred space. Things like marriage. It becomes sacred. There is holy ground, there are priestly functions, there are various sacraments. There are things that become charged with sacred meaning. And so those things represent the the sacred heavenly things in the world. But then there are other things that just honestly aren't very sacred and yet they have to be done. Things like daily business, things like government, the ordinary daily toil of life. And if you can't call that sacred, what do you call it? Well, you call it secular. It's, it's separated out. But both of these things exist in the world. Now, somewhere along the year 1500, a whole series of Reformation movements began. You have the Protestant Reformation. You have the Age of Enlightenment. You have all of these different political and social and scientific and religious reformations. And this old way of viewing the world where there's the sacred and the secular and there's two realms, it gives way to a modern world that's dominated by simply what is here. This material world. So, There's no longer this need to separate things out and say that some things are sacred and some things are not. Marriage, is it sacred? Well, yeah, it's sacred, but at the same time, it's also a contract. It's also legal. And so what you see is you see sacred and secular first get kind of squashed and mixed and confused until we get to the situation that we're in today where things that are sacred, spiritual, and heavenly... They don't exist in the public sphere so much. They don't exist out there in the public realm so much. 
But the message, if you'll stop and think about it, is often those are things that are private, individual, and personal. And we would all be better off if you would keep them to yourself. A lot of the problems in the world today are being blamed on religious fanatics. And I'm sure that in the mind of some people out there, I'm a religious fanatic simply because I believe there's a God and I believe that His Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord. That kind of makes me a fanatic. Great. Um, Those who feel that this is taking the world down the wrong path have said that when they're in charge, they're going to take better care of us religious people than religious people have taken care of the free thinkers and the non-believers. That kind of statement might make us nervous. I don't think it should. I say if they want to run the show on earth, let them have it. Because it's not ours to give away anyway. And it's not theirs to take either. It belongs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So let them have the broken toys. Let them have the stuff that just doesn't work. Who knows? They might do better, but if they don't, or if they do, what does it matter? Secular things are the norm, and it creates a state of the world where we even ourselves as believers sometimes think that sacred things should be private, individual, and personal. You know, whatever happened to confession? Whatever happened with sharing our burdens with one another? The effect that this has had, I'm not so much worried about the effect that this has had on the world, but I am concerned about the effect that a change like this has had on the world in the church, or the church in the world. And I believe that what it has done is, it has created a type of faith or a type of Christian living where we're all supposed to show up for a gathering, but honestly, we all have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and don't bother anybody else. I don't see that that is the teaching of Christ anywhere. And if we try to defend that, then then we've come up with a very warped and worldly way of doing faith. We're called upon to bear one another's burdens. We're called upon to, to encourage one another. We're called upon to confess our sins to one another. It doesn't mean that it has to go to the point of being exhibitionist or punitive. It just means that we can all admit that we need a Savior. And that we're going to help each other understand what that means to live with a Savior. We, we can't go back to the ancient division. We're not going to go back to this. And even if we could, I don't think that we should. So rather than despair that this change has happened and the world has become more secular, maybe this is an opportunity for us to stop relying on the artificial props that support faith and sort of force people into believing The sacred hasn't gone away simply because the world crafts a story that says the more enlightened and the more uh, scientific that we become, we start peeling away layers of the onion until we get down to the bottom and we find out that we don't need God anymore. And we can just reduce everything down to pure reason. Science and reason are never fully going to be able to explain the world. And honestly, when you leave it up To those forces, they write a story for the world that just doesn't make sense of anything. 
So what we need is not better science or better data. We don't need to learn how to play the game against those who disbelieve or those who are secular. What we need is we need a better story. And we need to tell a better story about the world and the God who is active in the world. And we'll come back to this in a moment. But the second thing we can say about the state of the world is this. The state of the world is anxious and fearful. Here's a statement about the anxieties in the world, a oracle or prophecy of doom. Our earth is degenerate in these later days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book and the end of the world is evidently approaching. Do you ever feel like that's true? Have you ever felt that way? Have, have you ever, could you look out at the world and see a fearful, anxious world and say, I, I, I know what this writer is talking about. Well, this could describe our days. However, it was written on an Assyrian clay tablet in the year 2800 B.C. The world of this Assyrian writer would be very different than the way you and I see the world. But when it comes to being fearful and worried about the world, this writer was not that different than you or I. The powers of this world, and by the powers of this world, we're talking about the political institutions, we're talking about the social institutions, we're talking about the economic forces, the media. These powers, these these forces and institutions have learned that one of the most efficient ways of keeping us interested in their well-being and keeping their power is to keep all of us fearful and anxious. Because when we're fearful and anxious, we'll, we'll likely do just about everything so that we don't have to be fearful and anxious. We will, we will send off and get the most ridiculous products for no more than four simple payments of $99.99 just so we don't have to be fearful and anxious anymore so that we can feel happier and more secure. We'll take off our shoes in airports just to feel more secure even though everybody knows that the next guy who tries to, to set off a bomb, he's not going to do it with his shoes. And if he does, every passenger on that plane will beat the man on principle. You know, You are the reason we have to take off our shoes. But we'll do anything because we feel fearful and anxious. The world is fearful of anxious and anxious, and it's the powers in the world that force us to be anxious. And whether it was 500 years ago written on a clay tablet or whether it's today written on an electronic tablet, fear is like a virus. And we're very concerned. We're very fearful. We're very anxious about the spread and the transmission of disease. We've got a lot of friends and family that are sick right now, and we're all worried that the flu is eventually going to be passed around. And, and it's, it's not fun to get that kind of a disease. We're, we're, we were really concerned when, when Ebola was coming to America. We've been very concerned about these things. We have a right to be concerned. We have a right to pay attention to these things, to do what we can. But I tell you that fearfulness and anxiety is just as virulent 
as any virus or bacteria or microbe. It can even be more virulent. And the next thing you know, it's, it's spread around the globe. And there are things that we are all worried about. And there are forces, you need to know this, there are forces that want you focused on that. Because some people have an investment in that fear and in that anxiety. Or they have an interest in you seeing them as the solution to it. Now, words like fear and anxiety may not be used, and I'm telling you this so you can be vigilant. (laughs) Which is one of the words that they'll use, vigilant. And my concern is not in any of us being fearful and anxious. Why should we? When we have true security, when we have a king, why should we? When we have a Savior, when we have a Rescuer who has promised us that we should not let our hearts be troubled. And in His Father's house there are many rooms. There's room for us all, He's saying. But watch for words like vigilant and cautious because it makes sense in a secular age that when there's no meaning to human existence other than what happens right now and you and you alone are responsible for determining both what happens with your past and what happens with your future, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to be cautious. Even those who may accept that there's a God can somehow leave God out of the middle. Sometimes there's a philosophy among us, and once again I'll say this, I'm not so much worried about what the world does with this. But I'm concerned about the church in the world and what we do with this. And we come up with a belief system. We come up with a faith where we have kind of a hollow sandwich God. He was there at the beginning to create things. And then He set up all the wheels in motion with His providence. And He's going to be there at the end to judge all things. And in the meanwhile, what we do is we as believers live in fearful anxiety of His return. And nowhere in the teaching of Christ will you see that that's what He has called us to be or to do or to live. Now think about that. We ought to pay attention to what Jesus has said. Jesus did not call us to fear. He did not call us to dimity. Jesus has said that He would not abandon us like orphans. He said that He would not leave us without giving us the spirit of comfort. He said that though the world might be fearful... He has overcome the world. The third thing about the state of the world is this. The state of the world is flawed and broken. Now it's very important that you understand the meaning of these words flawed and broken. It did not say that the world is evil. It did not say that the world is inherently bad. Because the world comes from God. It is created by God. The people in the world are created by God. And even if they live in rebellion to God or in ignorance of God, they still have the spirit and the image of God in them. Flawed means that something good has been warped or distorted. Broken means that something that is perfect has been damaged. So the state of the world is damaged. The state of the world is warped. It is corrupted in some way. But it still retains that goodness that God made in it. And that's the story that we tell. You see, we tell a story. You can read it in Genesis 1. You can read it in Genesis 2. You can read it in Genesis 3. But we tell it. We tell the story that God creates things good. He declares it good. 
But sin, which is no, nothing of itself, but sin is the distortion and the warping of those things. The breaking of that which is good. And God is at work to restore and to redeem and to heal and to make everything new again. That, in a nutshell, is the story that we tell. And when we tell that story, it ought to shape the way we view ourselves and the world we live in and the meaning of all of this and where it's all going. The world, however, gives us flawed stories and we accept them as true. We accept them as true so often they're just embedded in in our minds and our hearts. An example of these flawed stories might be this. If you'll work hard and if you'll do everything right, then you'll always be safe and you'll always prosper. Do you know anybody who has worked hard? Do you know anybody who has made good decisions? And yet, they're not safe or they did not prosper. But we tell that story. In general, maybe it's true, but it can't be the kind of story that gives us true meaning for who we are and what the world is. Another flawed story might be that if we are strong and powerful, then we will protect ourselves from our enemies. Now, we can use money or we can use the law or we can use weapons to enforce this power. Those are just the options. But we believe that that power keeps us safe and protected. And yet, do you ever know, have you ever known of a situation where the powerful have been caught off guard, where power was not enough to protect? It may be generally true, but it's not the kind of story that can give real meaning to life. One of the stories that we tell is that if we'll get our people in the right places, in control of government, then everything will go back to the way it's supposed to be. There's two problems with that. One is, is that at one time things were ever the way they were supposed to be. The second is, is that somehow you can trust a broken system to repair a broken system. Some people may even believe that story and shape their lives by that story because they believe that it's good for everyone involved. And how many times have we seen this? Where somebody does what's good for everyone, but they they trust in all the wrong things. They excuse it by saying the ends justified the means. That's hardly the case. I don't even know that that one's generally true, and I don't even know that that is the kind of story we ought to shape our meaning for life on. Um, One of the stories that is quite often told that you're going to see more and more is that once we as a species, once we as a people become more mature and we become more intelligent, then all of the superstition and all of the religious fantasy, all of that will fall away and we'll all get along as reasonable people. There's even thoughts about the development of the human race that, you know, what's going to happen is we're going to be like those characters in the comic books and we're going to get big old brains and big old brain pans and we're all going to have these super mental powers. And, you know, if we could all just read each other's mind, then somehow we would all get along and have more understanding. We've already tested that with Facebook and we know what each other thinks and it's not helping, okay? No, I I think that we're learning that these stories are a bit flawed. But again, I'm not so much worried about what the world does with this, but I am concerned what the church in the world does when we pick up some of these ideas. What I often see happening is we come up with stories and we come up with flawed ideas. That we don't trust that God provides all things. Instead, we come up with concepts like the Lord's money. 
I've told you before that that's a flawed concept. You're not going to find that terminology in Scripture. And the Lord's money, what does that suggest? Does that suggest that he's got a savings account? The Lord doesn't know how to manage his money very well. He's always giving it away to people. So we'll take his money and we'll put it in an account. We'll save it for him and we'll get him a good interest rate. And then he'll be real happy when he retires. There's no such thing as the Lord's money unless you want to say that it's all his money. And money's just money. God asks us to use money for his purposes to redeem it. Otherwise, it becomes a false god. We come up with ideas like church politics. I can't tell you how many years I've just assumed that there is something like church politics. But a study like this has convinced me. I've said, there are no politics. There should be no politics in the church other than this. We have an absolute monarchy. Christ is the king. He's the head of the church. Period. There's your politics. There's your politics right there. He saves. We have a king. We have a high priest named Jesus. What we need is not new data or better motivation. There's the story also that preaching is all about motivating people to do something. Preaching is about telling the truth. Preaching is about us hearing the truth. The time that we spend in worship is about being shaped. It's it's not about giving God His due as much as it's about us being shaped because we come into the presence of a God who wants to redeem us and fix our flaws, and he wants to repair the brokenness. And so what we need to be asking as we come into God's presence, as we spend time with one another in the presence of one another, is what is our story? I'm indebted to James K.A. Smith, who has written in his book this line, it's not enough to offer rival evidence and data. You need to tell a different story. If we tell a different story, then it makes sense of our existence and what's going on. Salvation is not something that we do ourselves. You see, if we just pick up the right information, if we follow the right steps, if we do the right procedures under the proper conditions, then we have the ability to work our own salvation. When salvation is reduced down to a a blueprint, like those you know those books that you buy at, at, at Home Depot and Lowe's and the other box stores? And you go in there and it's like, here, you can buy this and guess what? You'll be able to build your own house and build a cabinet. <laughs> you know, and it's going to be just, all you got to do is just follow those plans. And you know, there's, it, it's like anyone can just walk in there and if you get the right tools and if you follow the you know, measure correctly, then you can do that. There's no accounting for the years of experience, for the years of practice, of learning what it's like, of being apprenticed by those who know this not simply as a technique, but as a craft. Salvation is something that is not a do-it-yourself project. And when salvation is a do-it-yourself project, you don't need God. We need to tell in our story That it's not what you or I did to secure our own salvation, but it's the trust we had in a God who provides that salvation, who promises it, who guarantees it. And if we can tell that story about a God who has done great things, then all of our flaws and all of our brokenness just make that God a better hero in that story. It makes it all the more evident just how intense about salvation He is. Final statement about the state of the world is this that despite all of its flaws and brokenness, the state of the world is that it is loved by God. The world. 
the creation, you and I, those who know God and those who don't, they are all loved by God. You know, this would be a very compelling story to tell. One that comes, the truth that comes straight from the Spirit of God. The truth that comes right out of the mouth of Jesus about how much the world is loved. This word spoken by the messengers, the apostles of the good news that the world is loved by God. Because there's a lot of people out there who don't want to spend much time in a worship service like this with you and I. And you know why? Because they've been convinced that God doesn't love them. Or maybe they've seen people who claim to be God's people and they haven't been very loving. And so they do the law of transference and they say, well, if God's people don't love me, then God must not love me either. Now, what a compelling story that would be if we could communicate how much God loves the world. Let me tell you where that begins. And this may be difficult for some of us, but we can overcome it. If Christ has overcome the world, then we can overcome this. We've got to understand just how much God loves us. You need to understand how much God loves you. And that might be overwhelming. But there is no response to love other than to accept it. Because no matter what you do, as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So somebody says, I get it that God loves me. That makes me feel guilty. You're still loved by God. I get it that God loves me, but I don't know that I love Him. You're still loved by God. You say that God loves me. I'm not sure there is a a God. You're still loved by God. I hear that God loves me, but I'm such a hypocrite. You're still loved by God. Now, once you embrace that fact that God loves you, that's when life begins to change because the story changes. That's Paul, though. That's what he wrote in Romans 8. This is the message of the gospel. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. No matter how warped the creation is, the one who overcame the world and was in the world came into the world because of God's love for the world. And that story continues, and that work continues. I want to share with you these words from the same author, John, from 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out His commandments. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That's our invitation today. The state of the world is more and more secular, flawed and broken. It is fearful and anxious. And it is loved by God. And you and I living in the world can overcome the world because Christ has overcome the world. One of the things that, Paul, that John writes in that same chapter is this. I write these things so that you may know 
that you have been saved. One of the worst stories we've told is that you must constantly doubt your salvation. I don't know why we've ever told people stuff like that. Maybe we've wanted to keep them fearful and anxious so they'll keep checking in to the head office and making sure that their insurance policy is still in force and they'll keep putting their money in the plate. I don't know. I don't know why we do that. If your salvation depends on a church, then you should be fearful and anxious. If your salvation depends on a preacher like me, you ought to run screaming for the hills. If if your salvation depends on your own ability, yeah, you ought to be doubtful. But if your salvation is trusting in the one who overcame the world, then you can be secure. Oh, I know, somebody's going to say, well, wait a second, then you're saying we just trust in God and we go do whatever we want. No! Why would you squander such a gift when you've been set free, when you've been given new life, when you've been given new meaning? Because you have a much better story than what the world can give you. You're going to live that story out. So the invitation today is to overcome the world. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, those who want to submerge their life into His, can overcome the world. God loves you. How will you respond to that love? Let's stand. Let's sing.